this is cold war conversations if you're new here you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand cold war history accounts do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list at coldwarconversations.com on the 29th of august 1949 at 7 a.m the soviet union exploded its first atomic bomb the test surprised the western powers American intelligence had estimated that the Soviets would not produce an atomic weapon until 1953, while Britain didn't expect it until 1954. The speed at which the Soviet Union developed their bomb was due to a network of spies from the United States, the United Kingdom and Canada, who gave the Soviet Union the necessary information to develop an atomic bomb. They were motivated by a range of factors, Some, such as ideology or a belief in communism, were committed to advancing the interests of the Soviet Union. Others were motivated by financial gain, while some may have been coerced or blackmailed into spying. I speak with author Andrew Long, who's written Secrets of the Cold War, Espionage and Intelligence Operations from Both Sides of the Iron Curtain, which covers this story and many others. I'm delighted to welcome Andrew Long, to our Cold War conversation. This all revolves around the study of the atom, um, atomic physics. And the best minds in this field, uh, it was quite a narrow field back in the late 1930s, uh, was concentrated around universities in the US, universities in the UK, and various European capitals. And these were really the sort of hot cells of of knowledge and discovery. It came to a a bit of a head in 1938. So this is obviously before the breakout of the Second World War, when some scientists in Germany managed to split the atom. And what they found was that there was a release of energy at the moment the atom split. Now, this was a a sort of a, a completely new phenomenon. It took them a little while to actually get their heads around what exactly was happening. So A few years later, the dark clouds of war fall over Europe, and these scientists, again, in these various different hotspots around the world, start to realise that there could be a a military application for this this new scientific phenomenon. In the UK, um, it was centred around various universities, and a couple of scientists started to theorise that... In certain circumstances, a huge amount of energy could be released in the form of an explosion, and that explosion could potentially be part of a bomb. Now, the guy was called Otto Frisch. He was a uh, Jewish uh, refugee, fled from the Nazis, and he teamed up with a guy called Rudolf Piels, again, another Jewish refugee. And they put together a proposal, if you like, a, a memorandum, which became known as the Frisch Pyels Memorandum, quite a famous document, um, that conceptualised what it was in effect, the atomic bomb. It's quite a chilling document written in 1940, considering what was to come in a few years down the line. Anyway, this memo found its way onto Churchill's desk, Winston Churchill, British Prime Minister. He thought, OK, we need to get this looked into because they were of the opinion that if the British 
scientific community could come up with the idea, then possibly the German scientific community could come up with the same idea, which actually was what what was happening. So Churchill gave the go-ahead for a exploratory committee, which was set up. Um, It was called the Maud Committee, M-A-U-D. Now, for quite a while, people tried to to guess what Maud stood for. Was it some strange acronym to do with uranium or something like that? Well, actually, it was a much more simplistic answer. It was a random word chosen from a telegram. Um, Actually, Maud referred to a lady called Maud Ray, who was a a governess of one of the um, physicists' children. So it was just a name plucked out of a random uh, document. But again, it became the Maud Committee. And this pulled together all the different strands of the research in the UK, the physicists, the industrialists, uh, chemists, and, and the, 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 the sort of the, the started to bring together the whole thing into a project. A short while later, it was christened the Tube Alloys Project, which again was a cover name. And this you know, started to get some momentum going. Over in the US, again, a similar group of physicists came up with a similar conclusion. The science was out there. They just had to think it through. And a guy called Leo Zillard, he was a um, a physicist um, based over there. Again, another refugee from Europe. He pulled in probably the father of atomic physics, um, Albert Einstein. And they put together a letter to President Roosevelt saying, listen, We've come up with this idea, therefore, it's quite probable the British have and also the Germans. So, therefore, it's in our interests to start to work on this um, because, you know, we, we want to be prepared. So they wrote a, a, a famous letter, became known as the Einstein-Zillard letter. That landed on Roosevelt's desk and he gave the go-ahead for a, um, a project to look, look into this. Now, the U- UK project plateaued quite quickly. Um, The science was there, but the UK basically didn't have the resources to industrialise, to to make this science, this theory, into a practical uh, device. So they reached out to the Americans. Um, The Americans uh, realised that they needed some of the British science. They, They had their own scientists, but the British had some useful things to bring to the party. So they joined forces and it became, after various iterations, uh, the Manhattan Project. It was the Manhattan Engineer District, but everyone referred to it as the uh, Manhattan Project. Now, all this science, hundreds of physicists, probably the best physicists in the world, massive industrial concerns, um, uh, I mean, hundreds of thousands of people all working, all culminating in a device that was tested in the uh, in the desert in New Mexico on the 16th of July 1945 in what was the called the Trinity test and they they they, they detonated this device it's called the gadget in the desert and it worked it created a massive atomic explosion basically that the cat was out of the bag now that the world changed in a millisecond when the sky lit up with this fireball that was as hot as the center of the sun but of course it was all under an overall blanket of security or so they thought now the 
practical application of this was a uh, a weapons deliverable bomb and that was um put put to test only a few weeks later um over japan so the war in europe the, the war against the nazis finished in may 1945 and the bomb which wasn't ready anyway but uh, didn't have to be used to cause the collapse of Hitler's um, Nazi regime. However, the, the Japanese were fighting on, and so it was decided to use this wonder new weapon um, to try and bring the Pacific, the, the war against the Japanese, to a close. So on the 6th of August, 1945, the weapon was tested, or the weapon was deployed over Hiroshima, um, the world's first atomic attack, um, and as we know, the city of Hiroshima was almost wiped off the face of the earth. A few days later, same with Nagasaki. That finally brought the Japanese to uh, a surrender and the war was over. And um, that was a terrible thing to bring about the conclusion of a long, bloody war. Now, that left the US in possession of this fantastic new technology President Truman uh, was told that it would probably give them a something like a 10-year monopoly on the technology. And he was uh, jealously protecting that technology um, because he wanted to, to obviously be the most powerful nation on the block. So they were enjoying that position when on the 29th of August, 1949, a detonation was detected over... Um, the Soviet Union. It was a massive explosion in the uh, Kazakhstan area. And after a few weeks of um, testing, sending out aeroplanes to try and sample the air, the Americans realised that the Soviets had exploded an atomic bomb. Shocked them to the core, because how on earth did they get hold of this technology because it was top secret and um, uh, nobody else knew about it. Did you know that your account with Amazon can help me get new guests on the show? Just search for Cold War Conversations on Amazon and leave a review for the podcast. Thank you. As you said there, the, the Americans are fundamentally and the West is fundamentally shocked that the Soviet Union has managed to develop this technology so quickly, but they have been aided in various nefarious ways, haven't they? Well, that's right. Um, so, you know, how how on earth did they get this technology? If you think about the um, state of the Soviet Union after the Second World War, it was ravaged by um, you know almost unbelievable degrees of destruction, millions killed. Um, their industrial infrastructure was savaged um, and um, the whole um, nation or the, the sort of group of nations that came together to form the Soviet Union had been totally focused on winning the war over the over the Germans. So how on earth did they, they do this? Well, the answer is very simple. Espionage. To understand how, how this happened, we need to sort of like look back a few years in the 1930s, Stalin realised that his uh, great communist experiment was not giving him the cutting edge 
industry and technology he needed. It was dominated by very inefficient, heavy industry and was lagging behind the rest of the developed world. Um, So the only way that he could propel his huge country forward was to steal the knowledge and technology from his international rivals. And that's exactly what he did. He tasked his intelligence agencies which was the the NKVD. Um, now, just a quick pause here, because Stalin kept changing the name of his, te- his uh, intelligence agencies, which gets mighty confusing. Ultimately, it became the KGB, as most people know. But there was probably like half a dozen different iterations of this over the years. So I'll use the, the, the word NKVD primarily to talk about the, the Soviet intelligence agencies. The, the, the KGB didn't actually... Uh, come about until the 1950s. But there's also the GRU, which is the military intelligence arm. Anyway, he he tasked his agencies to infiltrate all aspects of Western society and steal state, military, political, industrial secrets, all with the goal of furthering the communist system. So during the 30s, um, with the purges ripping through his society, Stalin deployed his um, network of spies across the major industrialised nations around the world. So when you say spies, what sort of types of spy are you talking about here? Okay, so the way they were categorised were either legal or illegal spies. The legal spy was based inside an embassy or a consulate, and he enjoyed diplomatic cover. So they established what was called a residentura, which was a, um, a sort of like a intelligence organisation based within the embassy. And the resident, who was the guy in charge, he would conduct intelligence, op- intelligence operations and he'd run agents. If he was unmasked as a spy, the worst that could happen was basically being kicked out of the country, being declared persona non grata and expelled um, because he enjoyed diplomatic immunity. Um, there might be a bit of a row about it, but hey, it, that sort of thing happens. He'd often be there under an alias and working perhaps as a cultural attache or something like that to give him a cover story, but he, he, he'd enjoy the contacts of the diplomatic community which were useful in his job but also the technical communications and logistics all around the um, embassy he would then support illegal officers now these were guys living under deep cover in the country that they were based they had an assumed identity a cover story uh, a job perhaps a family a home and they had no diplomatic community so they were basically out in the cold um, if they were caught spying, they would then face the uh, the full force of the law, that they weren't protected by those dip- diplomatic niceties. A subset of those was the sleeper agent. Now, a sleeper agent would be placed in society and would establish this covering identity over many years, building a life without doing any espionage. And then he, waiting for the day when he'd get the call through some kind of agreed communications medium where they would be activated by the centre and they'd take on a particular mission. The legal of officers or the illegals, they would in turn run agents. Now, the agent was at the coalface. They they did the actual 
intelligence gathering. They steal information, perhaps from their colleagues or their employers. Um, agents will be recruited. There's a whole sort of like lexicon of words associated with uh, the world of espionage. Uh, they'd be recruited, and that, now they could be motivated by ideolo- ideology. So obviously communism was attractive to a lot of people back in the 1930s or attracted by financial reward, or even they could be entrapped, forced into spying by blackmail for some incident that would be held against them. They all would communicate with their handlers by using communications protocols known as tradecraft. These are techniques that would allow the uh, safe transfer of information from agent to handler. And the resident might also use couriers so that there would be an additional cutout between him and the agent. Couriers were also illegal agents working under deep cover. Were they using the local communist parties of each country to uh, assist them? Well, that was a thing. The um, the Communist Party of the of Great Britain, the CPGB, and the same in the USA, they were in effect, outstations of Soviet intelligence. Um, they had political objectives. You know, they were there to uh, raise the profile of the um, of communism and the Communist International, which was the uh, the international movement to promote communism as a state of uh, state of mind, as a state of policy. But these political part these political parties um, also served as logistics and communication hubs for agents under the noses of the uh, the authorities. Um, and then there was also something called a front organisation. Now, these were legitimate businesses often operating um, quite above board, perhaps a shipping concern, uh, a travel agent, uh, but a business that allowed a agent to operate in plain sight. So, for example, a uh, uh, working for a shipping company, an agent could travel around the country, uh, meeting various people, picking things up, returning to, to headquarters. It was basically a, a classic way of, of operating an intelligence network under a assumed organisation. Which spy gave the Soviets the first indication of the development of nuclear weapons in the West? In late 1940, reports began to filter through that the British were working on a project to exploit this military potential of of nuclear physics. The first atomic spy, if you like, um, he was actually part of a very famous group of spies, uh, the Cambridge, Cambridge Five. These were guys who were recruited at Cambridge University in the 1930s drawn to communism for often sort of naive ideological reasons, but they proved to be some of the most important spies of the early Cold War. All of them were recruited when they were young, but they sort of developed their careers and they managed to secure important jobs in the British British establishment using quite often the old school tie or the old boys network. The five were Kim Philby, Now, he established a career in the Secret Intelligence Service, SIS, otherwise known as MI6. A guy called Donald McLean, he built a career um, in the Foreign Office. A guy called Guy Burgess, now he had a sort of bit of a checkered career, but he did some time at the BBC, also for SIS and also in the Foreign Office. A guy called Anthony Blunt, 
he became a uh, a leading voice in the art world, but had close links with the royal family. And a guy called John Cairncross, he worked in the cabinet office. Now, the cabinet office is really at the heart of British government. All these guys, I'm sure most people will will have heard about the these famous spies, but it was Cairncross who broke the story to the Soviets about the atomic bomb project. He was private secretary to a guy called Maurice Hankey, Sir Maurice Hankey. Now, Hankey was very grand title, the Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster, which is a, a rather vague position, but he, he had an awful lot of power. He oversaw the British intelligence agencies and also chaired the government's scientific advisory committee. Now, this was very much the top of the scientific uh, tree in the United Kingdom. Um, they advised the government on policy and they um, controlled, really, the direction of science in the United Kingdom. They, as part of that, they oversaw tube alloys, which was, of course, the, the atomic bomb project. So with John Cairncross, Stalin's long-term slow burn, if you like, investment in intelligence had hit the jackpot. John Cairncross, anything that landed on um, Sir Morris's desk would be copied by John Cairncross and handed to the Soviets. Later on in the war, um, Donald Maclean, another of the uh, the Cambridge Five, he'd also become a, a, a source of uh, atomic secrets. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War, uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week. To be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War, as a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. Yeah, Cancross is an interesting character because, I mean, he also told the Soviets about Enigma and the breaking of the uh, the, the German codes as well. So, you know, he he's probably the lesser known member of the Cambridge Five, but one of the most devastating in terms of his betrayal. Yeah, he was one of the last to be outed. Um, Philby was, he defected in 1963. It was all, all very public. Um, Burgess and McLean defected in uh, 51, I think it was. Um, so these guys had high profiles basically because they, they defected in public. Anthony Blunt was outed much later on, and Cairncross. It was all very much under the under the radar, but that's obviously that worked for well, it worked for him, it worked for the Soviets, and later on, it worked for the British government too. Yeah, brush it under the carpet. Absolutely. So, what did the Soviets do with this valuable information? Well, in a very Soviet way, they had paranoia at the highest levels of government and this delayed their starting their own atomic bomb project 
basically um Lavrenti Beria now he he's a, a, a terrible man he was head of the NKVD I could, there could be a whole podcast on his exploits but he he was um he was receiving this information but because of this inherent paranoia he believed it was western disinformation so rather than push it upstairs to his boss stalin he sat on it which is an extraordinary thing to do but this guy was um, at the heart of soviet government i mean they had quite a, a mistrust of the cambridge five as well from what i remember they they were worried that there was disinformation coming from from them so their paranoia knew no boundaries really no and it it begs the question that if they um acted on all the information and, and took it as real what what changes there would have been to soviet policy soviet actions um during those years but yeah you're right they, they discounted a lot a lot of genuine information just because they believed it was a plant so were the the soviets getting information from other sources that helped them piece together the the fact that this was a real project rather than just relying on Cross's information. Yes. So, so over in Moscow, um, on one hand, you had Beria sitting on these reports because he believed they were made up. But the reports were going through to various different departments within the Soviet intelligence or apparatus. And their top sci- scientific spymaster, a guy called Leonid Kvasnikov, he he was seeing so much information through. He did a very brave thing, went out on a limb and ordered, this was in March 1942, he ordered his residences in London and New York to basically find out what was going on, find out what these physicists were up to. And this basically triggered Stalin's uh, masterstroke, if you like, that this investment was suddenly paying off. So there was this guy called Jacob Golos. Now he was a an old old school communist. He was one of the founding members of the Communist Party of the United States. He ran one of these front organizations, a travel agent. So the first, if you like, uh, step on this journey of uh, the atomic spies in the, uh, in the states, he recruited this American industrial chemist a guy called Harry Gold. Now, as well as obviously trying to secure secrets on the atomic programme, Stalin was basically after any industrial or military secret because he needed that information to kickstart his um, his, his economy. So, yeah, this, this guy actually started off as an industrial spy, stealing industrial secrets in the sugar industry, would you believe? He also built Golos, uh, built a network of agents around a guy called Julius Rosenberg. Now, he was an electrical engineer and also a communist. Um, he was talent spotted and groomed by Golos um, to start working within the US military on the technical side. Uh, Rosenberg got this job at Fort Monmouth in New Jersey and began passing secrets to the Soviets on uh, secret US military communications systems. 
Julius didn't stop at that, though. He recruited like-minded friends that fought Monmouth and other military contractors. These were guys that he went to school with. He he knew through the communist um, social network, if you like. So he, he started off being a spy himself, an agent. But then pretty soon he started to become a courier, acting between these friends of his, and the NK- NKV resident, a guy called Semyon Semyonov, um, who was responsible for technical intelligence um, in the US. So at this stage, they weren't dabbling in, nu- in the world of nuclear science, but they were still bringing in a lot of valuable um, military tech to the Soviets. Following that call by Kvasnikov um, in Moscow, Semyonov, there's lots of great Soviet names here, Russian names, but he directed Rosenberg to make contacts with within the Manhattan Project. And uh, Rosenberg would actually be very successful in this task. His first spy was a guy called Russell McNutt. Now, McNutt is a, is a fairly unknown uh, atomic spy. There were some very big names later on, but he was the first. Um, he was a civil engineer, and he got a job with a company called or the Kellex Corporation. Now, they were a engineering company who were tasked with building the huge uranium enrichment plant at Oak Ridge, as, as I said, Oak Ridge in Tennessee. And as I said earlier, there's, there was a massive industrial arm to the Manhattan Project that doesn't really get much coverage. Um, so... He was a civil engineer. He wasn't involved in weapons physics, but he was he had the um, title of the, the Soviet Union's first spy inside the Manhattan Project. And he was able to give layouts and structural drawings of this Oak Ridge plant, which was vitally important to the um, the bomb process. His Rosenberg's second spy was a guy called Oscar Sibora. Now, he joined the Manhattan Project as part of the Special Engineering Detachment, the SED. This was a group, this was, this was a, a US Army um, organization, tal- talented engineers who would work on the actual construction of the bombs. Um, again, he wasn't a weapons physics guy, but he was on the practical side, the manufacturing um, of the bomb. So his intelligence, I think what we see here is layers of information that, that people at the very top of the intelligence tree would then piece together a much bigger picture so each small source had incredible value when viewed as a whole sabora was present present at the uh, trinity test and he was only one of four soviet agents at los alamos so los alamos was the scientific center of the manhattan project um in down in new mexico so four agents worked inside Los Alamos, which was supposed to be one of the most secure places on the planet. Only goes to show. Rosenberg's third agent, he didn't have to look too far, his brother-in-law, David Greenglass. Now, Greenglass was a fellow communist. He also got a job with the SED, the Special Engineering Engineering Detachment at Los Alamos. And he was working on the explosive lenses that were used to use the implosion technique to detonate the plutonium bomb. Now, Rosenberg paid his sister, Ruth, to go down to New Mexico and live live close to Los Alamos so she could act as a courier for his 
uh, espionage. But the resident in New York thought that was too risky, so organised for this guy called Harry Gold, who we've already mentioned, the uh, industrial chemist that working in the uh, sugar business, uh, to be his courier. As it happened, Gold was already working with a spy at Los Alamos, a British guy, British scientist, who we'll learn about in a minute. But in a lovely bit of tradecraft, this is classic tradecraft, they took a box of jello, or jelly as we call it in the UK, um, they tore that box in half, one half was given to Greenglass and the other half was given to Gold. So when Gold travelled down to New Mexico, he could he would present this torn cardboard box with a nice ragged edge and that it could be matched up with the, uh, the box that Greenglass had, proving who they were and they could talk to each other about the, the mission. So a lovely bit of tradecraft. And that jello box was evidence in, uh, in their trial much later on. So David Greenglass gave masses of information on the operation at Los Alamos, how it was structured, what buildings did what. And also he, he gave them information on the detonation process. I think you, you mentioned earlier that the, the, the Soviets sort of pieced this together from various other sources. So there's not just these agents involved. There's, there's other agents also providing information to the NKVD. Yeah, that's that's a key point. None of these agents knew that the others were in operating. As far as, as each of them were concerned, they were the only spy at the heart of the project. But there were loads, as, as we'll see in, in, in due course. Um, for example, there was a guy called Ted Hall. Now, he was a, a, a young guy, a, a physics pro- prodigy. He was headhunted. Uh, to go and work at Los Alamos at the tender age of 19, would you believe? But he might have been a, a sort of like a, a physics genius, but he was politically naive and he saw communism as the way forward. So he was taken on at the Manhattan Project, but he also then offered his services to Soviet intelligence. Um, to start with, he used a friend of his called Saville Sachs as his courier, and he, he actually passed some really big information across. Details on implosion, for example. This was the technique used to detonate the plutonium bomb. Now, implosion was such a new concept to the world at, at the time. Um, when they came to translate it into, into Russian, there wasn't actually a word in the um, in the Russian dictionary for this thing, so they had to invent a word. It just shows you how new this science was. Um, but this was the first the Soviets learned about a plutonium bomb, and that was broken by this uh, Ted Hall guy. As the project was nearing its completion, this amateur courier with Savile Sachs, the resident thought, hang on a second, this is a bit risky. We can't have amateurs involved. We need to get a pro along. So this double act was put to one side and the resident assigned this experienced courier to to handle Ted Hall's material. This was a lady called Lona Cohen and she appears in uh, the Portland Spy saga, uh, which I know you've um, uh, talked about on this podcast. But he gave her, for example, diagrams of the actual bombs, uh, the fat man, the plutonium bomb that was used at Nagasaki, little boy, the uranium bomb that was used at um, 
Hiroshima, he actually handed over diagrams of these bombs to Lona Cohen. Uh, Lo- Lona is is an interesting character. In fact, I interviewed a KGB illegal that had had some training off Lona Cohen and also her husband, Morris Cohen, in Moscow. Um, so this it was really interesting speaking to somebody who actually uh, <laughs> met met them. So uh, I will be giving details of the uh, the relevant episodes for uh, any connections here in the episode notes. From from what I I hear here, most of these spies were not sort of like trained to be spies. They were sort of like amateurs working on on the side. Did the Soviets have anybody who had specifically been trained for this role? Most of the training went to the um, the handlers, the the people who were um, operating these agents, and they would then pass their knowledge on down to the agents. So yes, you're right; they are mostly amateur spies albeit trained by professionals. But there was one guy, so this is the next uh, atomic spy in the mix, a chap called George Caval. He was actually a, a professionally trained GIU agent. He was um, he was born in the US. Um, his family emigrated to the Soviet Union in the 1930s. He grew up, he was trained as a spy, and then sent back to the US. Uh, where he started operating um, as a as a as a spy, uh, he managed to get himself posted to the Manhattan Project, uh, again part of this SED uh, te- technology group, um, and was assigned as a health physics officer to Oak Ridge. Now, this was a, a really important job. Basically, he was there to monitor radioactivity around the site and make sure that um, there were no potential health risks. It was all very basic in those days, but at least they had somebody there with a Geiger counter going around checking what was happening. But as a result, he had a, like an access all areas pass. He had his own Jeep. He could come and go as he pleased. Now that's just a, an absolute godsend for a, uh, a, a spy because it meant he could um, dip his fingers into pies all over the site. He was able to monitor polonium production. Now polonium is a element that's used in the as a, as an initiator in the plutonium bomb. He was able to, to to identify that polonium was being shipped from Oak Ridge to Los Alamos. Now, for the Soviets, that was the first positive link they had between Oak Ridge and the Los Alamos site in New, New Mexico. That was a major bit of intelligence. He was also then posted to um, Dayton, Ohio, to uh, a polonium manufacturing facility operated by Monsanto, did the same job. And as a result, he could really talk about this initiator part of the bomb, which obviously, without that, the bomb would not go off. So we've actually got five spies within the Manhattan Project so far. So we've got Russell McNutt, he, he's this civil engineer with the Kellex Corporation. Oscar Sabora, he's uh, with the SED at Los Alamos. Greenglass, again with the SED. Ted Hall is this physics pro- prodigy at Los Alamos. And George Caval, who's going around with his Geiger counter, uh, measuring radiation and monitoring everything that he sees. In addition, we've got Rosenberg, who was a, a spy who then became a, ring, a sort of ringleader and courier. We had Harry Gold, who was courier for Greenglass, plus this 
British spy. We'll talk about it in a minute. And um, our friend Lona Cohen, who careered for Hall. You mentioned earlier a British spy at Los Alamos, but th- there was more than one there. Well, we're talking about Klaus Fuchs, of course. Um, so um, he was one of the British spies, so therefore there's more to come. So Klaus Fuchs was a uh, a, a refugee from the Nazis, uh, a theoretical f- physicist. The difference was he wasn't a Jewish refugee. He was actually a communist refugee. So he, he fled the Nazis because of his political beliefs, not because of his uh, race. Now, he was a very talented physicist. He arrived in the UK uh, and was able to start his career again. Uh, and after a couple of false starts, was able to join tube alloys, specialising in the really important gaseous diffusion method of enriching uranium. Uranium, when it comes out of the ground, is no use at all for an atomic bomb. It has to be very refined to make it usable. The isotopes need to be separated. So unless that can be done, you've got no bomb. So after the Soviets switched sides uh, in, in June 1941, uh, basically the Germans reneged on their agreement, invaded the Soviet Union, the Soviet Union joins the war against the Nazis. A lot of scientists, Fuchs being one of them, but also Ted Hall, we've just talked about as well, they thought it was wrong that these atomic secrets were not being shared um, with the Soviets. They, because basically the, the Americans and British didn't want to pass those secrets on. They thought it was wrong. They, they thought it was their duty to basically share the information. So that's the ideological motivation. And also, technically, we were allies with the Soviet Union at that point. So you can you can you can see some logic there. Yeah, very much so. Um, and you know, these guys were very very intelligent people. Um, but they they believed in the sort of like a, a universal science community. Well, actually, of course, as soon as the war started, all the shutters came down and it all became very comp- compartmentalised and it became a state secret. So, yeah, you're right. that they, they, they wanted to share the information with their allies, albeit motivated by, by a, a belief in communism. So Klaus Fuchs uh, was operating in the Tube Alloys project. He didn't know anybody within the communist um, uh, sort of set up in the UK, um, met this guy at a party uh, who was the exiled leader of the German Communist Party, a guy called Jürgen Kaczynski. Now, Kaczynski was actually still very much involved in um, espionage, and he passed Fuchs on to the GRU resident in London, who then assigned a handler called Semyon Kramer. Now, Fuchs was a prolific spy. I mean, he was passing over reams and reams of information, details of experiments, industrial processes, calculations of how they were going to separate the different isotopes of uranium, and also how they were operating with the with uh, the Manhattan Project, how it was all being coordinated. So Kramer was suddenly recalled to Moscow, disappeared off the face of the earth, Fuchs then started working with uh, a lady called Ursula Kaczynski. Now, he didn't know her as a Ursula Kaczynski. He knew her as Ursula Burton. Now, she was known as Agent Sonia, who is, again, quite a famous uh, spy. Books have been written about her. And, of course, she was Jürgen's sister. But 
Fuchs did not know this. He continued to hand over masses of information to her. Um, she installed a transmitter at her house in Oxfordshire, so she was able to transmit quite a lot of information. But the pages and pages of, of complex calculations that Fuchs was providing had to be handed to the GRU resident in London. They were then put in the diplomatic bag, shipped to Moscow, and then, of course, the scientists over there could try and interpret, interpret the information. So intelligence was starting to flood into Moscow. And despite Beria's caution, despite him being paranoid that it was all a, a, a disinformation campaign, it found its way into the State Defence Committee. Now, th- these guys were pretty powerful. And they sort of overruled Beria's caution and proposed a, a atomic bomb project to work in parallel. So this is September 1942. A guy called Igor Kurchatov was to head this project, and um, he was given the task of taking all this intelligence and converting converting it into their own bomb. Now, I do have a, a tenuous connection with Klaus Fuchs, and it is tenuous, but um, when I lived in North London, I used to drink in the same pub that he met his courier, so the nag's head in wood green. I drank in. I never saw any uh, shady-looking uh, KGB people in there, but maybe I wasn't looking in the in the right place. But that's my only claim to a link with uh, Klaus Fuchs. Well, if you, um, I, I haven't got got it sort of um, in front of me, but there are details um, the the tradecraft routines that that the guy would would use. So in, in this pub that you mentioned, it's mentioned in the archives. Um, it talks about something like um, drinking a pint of Guinness or holding a particular newspaper or a tennis ball in one hand and a pair of gloves in the other. I mean, it's really bizarre stuff. But yeah, you're right. That that pub was was mentioned, and uh, the the uh, routines they had to go to to identify each other sound quite comical now. But actually, if you think about it in the context of what they were doing, it was you know real life or death stuff. Brilliant, brilliant tennis ball in a north london pub so all that drinking you did in in those days it was obviously setting you up for this uh, podcast yeah little did i know that was going to be a useful bit of well a completely useless piece of trivia um (laughs) but fuchs wasn't the only british spy there's others yeah there, there, there was and again all these guys were operating in parallel they had no knowledge of each other so fuchs was really kick-started the uh, atomic bomb project. But there was another guy called Alan Nunn May. Now, he was, a again, a, an experimental physicist, and but he was a secret communist. He joined Tube Alloys um, and headed over to Canada um, in January 1943. Basically, Tube Alloys upped sticks and uh, moved over to North America um, as the war uh, progressed. They needed the resources over in the US and Canada. And also from a security point of view, uh, safety from German bombs, it made sense to locate these guys where the, it was much safer. So Nunmay moved to Canada. He started working at the Chalk River Laboratory in Ottawa in Canada, but also he got involved at the Argonne Laboratories in Chicago, which was part of the uh, University of Chicago. And also the DuPont facility in Hanford, Washington State, which is where the uh, there were reactors producing plutonium. Now, he 
passed extensive details of the Canadian reactor program. Um, he gave them samples of the isotopes that were being split as part of the refining process. And all these were couriered to Moscow. Um, he gave details of plutonium stocks at Hanford, for example. Um, and he was there at the Trinity test. He had reports of the atomic bombs dropped on Japan. His reports arrived in Moscow only a couple of days after the actual bomb. So, you know, he was actually um, quite an important part of this whole story. The third guy, third British guy, was a guy called Bruno Pontecorvo. Now, he was an Italian, British, Jewish, communist physicist. Um, he, he had quite a illustrious career in Italy. He worked with Enrico Fermi, who was a very famous nuclear physicist. But he had to flee the sort of fascist uh, tendency that was, was um, growing in Italy as well as in Germany. He ended up in Canada. Um, and he started working on the NRX heavy water moderated reactor at Chalk River. Basically, the Manhattan Project was looking at different types of technology. So they were looking at graphite moderated reactors, which um, were being developed at Hanford. But they also used this heavy water moderated reactor uh, as an experimental thing. And Pontecorvo was working on that. So he arrived. He was a committed communist. He knocked on the door of the um, the embassy in Ottawa and eventually got the attention of the NKVD resident, or it was the NKGB then, and he would go on to give the Soviets uh, details of Fermi's famous experiment, which was the first controllable nuclear react reaction. Without a controllable reaction, you can't have a reactor. You therefore can't produce plutonium for a bomb. He also provided details of the, um, the, the Canadian reactor and gave actual samples of these uh, isotopes. Now, again, our friend Lona Cohen, um, who we met earlier, she was his courier. So she picked up these radioactive samples and passed them via the diplomatic bag to Moscow. So in late 1943, Fuchs learned that he was going to move from the UK, the Tubal Alloys uh, organization, move over to, to the North America to work with the Manhattan Project. Basically, all his colleagues, as I said, up sticks and move over there. He by now he'd become a British naturalized citizen. He was a civil servant, so he passed multiple security vetting. So he had his toxic top secret clearance. None of them had picked up that he was a communist. And all this time he was handing secrets to the Soviets. So a major mistake by the British the British security services, should we say, uh, to say the least. When Fuchs arrived in the States, um, he was actually taken on by the NKVD. So in the, in the UK, he was being run by the GRU, but there was sort of like a, a turf war and the, the um, NKVD won. Um, Fuchs started to work at Columbia University, and because his expertise was in this gaseous diffusion, the way of refining uranium, he also worked a lot with the guys at Oak Ridge in Tennessee. His handler was Semyon Semyonov, who, we, if you remember, we talked about earlier because he worked with the Rosenbergs. Another name, Harry Gold. Well, we talked about Harry Gold acting as a courier for David Greenglass. Well, they allocated Gold as Fuchs's courier. Now, 
that might have been perhaps a, a, a good use of resources, um, having one person handling two agents. But this connection would actually prove to be their, their undoing. And we'll talk about that in a minute. Fuchs, he was a model agent. He, he basically... Anything the Soviets wanted, he gave them. So he gave them details of experiments, timetables, the processes. He gave them plans with detailed dimensions. And he, he had almost like a photogra- photographic memory. So he could write down really, really complicated formula out of his head um, that he could then pass on. And he had a strange situation that he would be meeting in a, in a perhaps a restaurant with Harry Gold. Gold would then skip out of the restaurant, nip round the corner, talk to Semyonov or one of his colleagues, get some questions, then nip back into the restaurant, ask the questions, and then nip back round the corner to deliver the answers. It was a, almost like a, 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 a charade, if you like, but it, it was the way they worked. And Fuchs was a prolific provider. When Fuchs then was posted down to Los Alamos, um, Harry Gold went with him. So down in Los Alamos, Fuchs gave um, Gold details of the Los Alamos setup. Now, all these information, it's important to think, all these different spies that we've talked about created layers of knowledge. And so obviously now Fuchs arrives at, down at Los Alamos. He's a very observant guy. He describes what he sees that then could be compared and contrasted by the guys back in Moscow to create this overall picture. So it's all little parts of this jigsaw, although to be fair, Fuchs was a really, really big part of that jigsaw. He betrayed the speck of the plutonium bomb. He gave you know real precise details of the Trinity gadget and the Fat Man bomb, including this implosion method, which was like a such an important part of the, uh, the process. Hall we talked about earlier, Ted Hall, he also gave information on implosion, albeit from a slightly different perspective. Again, that helped them recreate the device. And Greenglass and Sabora, we talked about earlier, they talked about the actual mechanicals of how it all worked. So you can see all these different parts of the jigsaw helping the Soviet project under Kurchatov come together. The crazy thing, uh, when you look back in hindsight, Security at Los Alamos was incredibly tight. As I said, it's probably the most secure uh, patch of real estate in the world. But Fuchs was allowed to own a car, which was quite rare. um, Certainly it was rare in Los Alamos, but it was reasonably uh, rare in in the 1940s. But he was let out of the uh, secure compound once a month to go shopping in Santa Fe without supervision, which again is, is, is an incredible oversight if you, if you again, viewing in hindsight. Santa Fe as a, as, a, as a city, as a town, was packed full of FBI in plain clothes. It was like a, a counter, counterintelligence uh, uh, nightmare, if you like. But somehow gold was able to, to meet Fuchs. They, they, they rendezvoused on a bridge in the middle of Santa Fe, for example, and Fuchs carried on passing over reams and reams of intelligence. He he talked about, for example, how they overcame this instability inside the bomb with the, with the physics. Uh, it, it could have completely derailed the the project, but they found that they could use certain combinations of metals to overcome this problem. Now that could have held the Soviet bomb project up for years, but. Fuchs handed it to them on a, on a silver platter. 
Fuchs was also able to give details of early research on the super, which is the hydrogen bomb, the thermonuclear bomb. And that was very important for kickstarting that process in the uh, Soviet Union as well. So it it sounds like, without doubt, Fuchs was the most devastating of all the atomic spies. Would that be a fair thing to say? I think he was probably the most prolific. And because of his position within the um, you know, the top scientific group at Los Alamos. He was um, privy to all the, 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 the scientific secrets. Ted Hall, uh, who we talked about earlier, was also pretty influential as well. But Fuchs, I think, trumped him just really because of the mass of information. Also, Fuchs had this photographic memory as well, so he could deliver really, really complicated equations and things, which, of course, the... the scientists in Moscow could then interpret. So, yeah, he was probably the most devastating aspect. So we've not spoken about my, if you could have favourite atomic spies, I think that this, the, the one that I hopefully we're going to talk about in a moment is is my favourite. The, um, the one that was nicknamed the spy that came in from the co-op. Yeah, now... Perhaps um, international uh, listeners might not know what the co-op is. Uh, the co-op is a, uh, a cooperative supermarket chain that was well, it still still exists, um, but it was always very much uh, viewed as a part of provincial England. It's a yeah, it's a a, a very British organisation. Anyway, yes, the the lady you're talking about, your favourite spy, is a lady called Melita Norwood, known as Letty. Um, she was a a, a classic uh, part of uh, espionage history. She was probably one of the, the longest serving Soviet spies. She operated from 1937, now wait for this, right through to 1972. That's a hell of a career working, you know, under the radar, deep cover, risking um, her her freedom every day. So that's a, a, a massive contribution to Soviet espionage. She was only exposed in 1999 by the publication of the Mitrokhin um, archives. The Mitrokhin archive is a collection of handwritten notes, primary sources and official documents that were secretly made, smuggled and hidden by KGB archivist Vasily Mitrokin during the 30 years that he served in the KGB at Foreign Intelligence Service. When he defected to the UK in 1992, he brought the entire archive with him in six full trunks. Melita Norwood was outed as a spy at the age of 87, little old lady. Um, there's a, she was also called the Grandma Spy as well. Um, there's a, a film called Red Joan, you, you might have seen, um, starring Judy Dench, which, which is a fictionalised uh, story about her. But yeah, she was uh, very much the, uh, the, the the spy who came in from the co-op. Um, she flew under the radar of authorities by virtue of her gender. Basically, uh, the, the the male-dominated establishment couldn't conceive that a, a female would be a spy. That was also how Ursula Kaczynski was able to be so successful. She used her gender to uh, camouflage her activity. Norwood was also relatively lowly in the in in the organisation. She was a secretary. Now, she was able to move under the radar, but her betrayal was certainly as as great as her male colleagues. 
Norwood worked for the British Non-Ferrous Metals Research Association, which sounds a bit obscure, but they were a, a research group and they took sort of contract research, met- metallurgical research, um, from a whole bunch of different clients. And one of them was tube alloys. Despite having communist connections, her sister was an out-and-out communist and, uh, and uh, Letty was a, a closet communist, shall we say. She passed vetting and she was actually given a security clearance. And she rose through the Non-Ferrous Metals Research Association to become a personal assistant to the director. She had keys to his safe. She was able to pop in when they were out, open the safe, take out documents. She had one of those Minox spy cameras. She'd snap documents and pass them back to her, her handler. And her handler was no less than Ursula Kaczynski, Agent Sonia, who we met. So there's all these lovely connections uh, between all these different spies. Prior to the Soviets detonating their uh, atom bomb in 1949, were there suspicions that any spies were there? Were you know any investigations going on after after the war prior prior to that point, and when you know the Cold War was starting to uh, appear? Yeah, so. The Second World War ended. The Manhattan Project, in its um, sort of like wartime fervor, started to wind down. And all these individuals, all these um, scientists and our atomic spies, all went their separate ways. Again, I've said this before, but it's important. None of them knew that there were loads of other spies there. So it was interesting that they, they all disappeared off to start their new lives in the knowledge that they were you know, the only spy, actually they weren't, they were part of actually quite a group of spies, but compartmentalization meant that uh, that they were kept in the dark, which actually worked quite well from a security point of view. So at the end of the war, the Americans decided to stop cooperating with the British. Now that's a, that's a bit, bit, bit of a sad situation when the, the British had co- uh, contributed so much to the project, but that was the, the reality in this new, new world order, if you like. So the British contingent, um, Fuchs being one of them, returned to the, U- the UK. Most of them were to stay in the in the world of um, atomic physics, um, either in the uh, official government organisation, which was the UK Atomic Energy Research Establishment at Harwell in Oxfordshire, or working in uh, academia or in other industries. Um, when Fuchs returned, he continued his espionage. So he, he returned. He um, was this time handled by the MGB, which is, the, the, the again, the next iteration of the NKVD saga. And his handler was called Alexander Feklisov. Pontikorvo, Bruno Pontikorvo, we talked about before, he also started working at Harwell, but none may. Um, he started working at King's College in London uh, as, a, as a professor. The American spies who we talked about, most of them were in the military. They were demobbed and they started whatever life. Ted Hall went back into academia. So, yeah, they scattered all over the world. These people disappear into, let's say, academic obscurity. But with that detonation of that bomb, the US and the British know that there were agents within the Manhattan Project and elsewhere. Where's the the first lead that starts to uh, roll up the, this network? 
Well, it actually starts before the bomb, um, before the Soviet bomb. So that was August 1949. Um, if, you, if, you, if you think of intelligence networks, they are very fragile structures. Um, I use the analogy of like a house of cards. You've, all you need to do is weaken one of the cards at the bottom and the whole lot falls down. Now, that's basically what happened with our Soviet um, espionage network. The first to fall was a guy called was was Alan Nunmay. Now he was identified by a Soviet spy who defected. He was a GRU cipher clerk uh, working in Canada, a guy called Igor Guzenko, and he defected in September 1945. So we're talking just after the um, just after the bombs. When they actually reviewed the material that he he smuggled out as as he escaped, it. it Pointed to Nun May, there was it was no 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 question. It was it, he was delivering secrets to the um, uh, Canadian resident. So he was put up, put on, under surveillance by the Canadian Mounted Police, and then um, when Nun May returned to the UK, which happened um, I think in October 1945, um, he was surveilled by the MI5 literally as soon as he climbed down the steps of the air- aircraft. The Documents that Guzenko handed over had indicated that Nunn May was supposed to check in with his new handlers in the UK. Uh, basically, Fuchs, all, all the agents were given protocols to basically start their spying action when they got back into the UK. So Nunn May was supposed to rendezvous with his new handlers in October. But the dates that he was supposed to be there, the main date and the two fallback dates, the the um, handlers were nowhere to be seen. None may just went about his normal day, daily life. So something had happened. It transpired that Kim Philby, who we mentioned earlier, one of the Cambridge Five, he was very senior at SIS. He found out that um, basically None May was under suspicion. He managed to warn None May to not turn up with his handlers warned the handlers to stay well away uh, and basically yeah they, they managed to dodge that bullet um, but it didn't last very long because Nun May was interviewed by special branch uh, in February 1946 they basically presented a, a, a slam dunk case uh, presented the evidence and he had nothing no option but to uh, to confess so he confessed to working for the Soviets but he refused to cooperate he wouldn't name names so when he was um, sent to trial, which was May 1946, he was sentenced to 10 years in prison for contravening the Official Secrets Act. This was the first indication that the Manhattan Project had been pen- penetrated. Um, the Americans reacted badly to this news that a British agent had basically sold their secrets as they, as they saw it, um, and they shut the British out. The Next step in this collapsing house of cards was actually led by cryptography, code breakers. Now, during the Second World War, uh, I think you mentioned earlier about Bletchley Park and Enigma, the the code breakers um, made a major contribution to uh, winning the war. And it would be a code breaker who actually brought down the rest of these spies. The project was called Venona. 
1943, we go back to the Second World War, the US Army Security Agency, ASA, which is a forerunner to the NSA that we, we have nowadays, began to decode Soviet diplomatic traffic that they were sending between Moscow and their US consulates. Um, what often is the case, um, it all fell down by a, a silly administrative error by the guys who produced these um, cipher pads, these one-time pads, meant that the codes that were meant to be random and therefore unbreakable started to show patterns, and cryptographers love patterns. This simple mistake gave the the cryptographers at the ASA a foot in the door. It gave them a way in to the, to the code, and they started to decode, intercept, make sense of some of these thousands of messages that were being passed. The, 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 the golden period, if you like, was between 1942 and 1944, um, which, of course, was when a lot of the atomic spying was going on. After that, the corrected pads went back into circulation, so it all went dark, but they had about 3,000 messages that they could work with. In December 1946, um, the code breakers in the States partially decoded a December 1944 message between New York and Moscow, which listed, would you believe it, Manhattan Project scientists. So this was irrefutable proof that the project had been penetrated, but also that the traffic, the signals traffic, these 3,000 messages that they'd trawled, was actually much more than just diplomatic chit-chat talking about the next um, cocktail party. It was really important espionage. So for the next couple of years, the pieces of this enormous jigsaw began to fall into place. And I think a bit like the, the scale of the Manhattan Project, it's quite easy to underestimate just the huge task these code breakers um, uh, took on. They um, brought GCH, GCHQ in, um, the British code breaking uh, group, the, the 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 successors to the guys at Bletchley Park, they brought in the FBI on the counterintelligence side, um, and it, it's an extraordinary feat of both code breaking and detective work that they identified three hundred and forty nine suspects. That's all hidden behind code names, which is a, you know, a huge thing. But they still had to whittle away. It was an incredibly painstaking, slow job. But by linking um, code names with activities, with dates, with places, all of a sudden a picture started to, to emerge. Now, v Venona was a massive secret. Um, it was leaked in the 1980s as a concept, but it was only declassified in 1995. So just shows you, shows you what a big secret this was. The first to fall as part of this uh, thing was Klaus Fuchs a German scientist. Um, his codename was Charles, uh, but also was Rest, those the, the codenames. Those names started to appear in decrypts. The Venona team, by September 1949, had linked these codenames, Charles and Rest, to his sister, who was also a sort of a bit of a courier involved in this mix. Her codename was Aunt, she was uh, her name was Crystal, um, and also linked in with Harry Gold, whose code name was Goose. So these these code names, Charles, Aunt, and Goose, all started to be linked together in communication. That pinpointed that it could only really be one person 
who had one one guy who had a sister in the States who was meeting up these people on this particular day, and they closed in on him at Harwell. And after what was a, a lengthy sort of um, a gradual interrogation, it was very low-key, they started talking to him, started introducing bits of evidence, building trust, and ultimately Fuchs confessed. Um, I was arrested. This was February 1950. So this co-breaking detective thing had got their first victim. Fuchs went on trial the following month, uh, was convicted and sentenced to just 14 years in prison. Now, we talked about Fuchs being perhaps the most damaging spy, but because of the way the English law works, um, he was convicted um, under the Official Secrets Act and the maximum amount they could sentence him was 14 years. So, um, it's just a, obviously an indication of um, the limitations, perhaps, of the English justice system. The second weak link was Harry Gold. Now, he, as I said, he was implicated in this investigation with Fuchs. He was identified, some very clever detective work, um, pinpointed Harry Gold, and he was arrested in May and sent May 1950 and was sentenced to 10 years in prison uh, at the end of that year. You you mentioned Harry Gold with uh, Fuchs there. Did did he lead them on to others? Yeah, the best way of thinking thinking about this is a cascade. So again, Fuchs was 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 found out because of the um, detective work around the Venona codes. Um, Harry Gold was connected to Fuchs because he his name appeared in the same messages, and he was the the next uh, weak link. And his undoing then led to a whole load of other people being discovered. So it's very much uh, a domino approach, a domino um, situation. So Gold was arrested in May 1950. Um, he was sentenced to 10 years in prison in December 1950. So he was he basically confessed and he cooperated. He implicated David Greenglass, um, who uh, was the next guy. Now, Greenglass's wife, uh, Ruth, she was a fellow communist. She was a peripheral member of this uh, espionage ring, if you like. But they used her as leverage and... They said she, they were going to throw the book at her, put her in prison, and and, and uh, throw away the key. Um, Greenglass was offered a um, an opportunity to basically sell out his brother-in-law Julius Rosenberg. Now, it was a very cynical move, and you know it's 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 been much analysed and and criticised in in later years. But it basically kept his wife uh, Ruth out of prison. But it implicated both Rosenberg, Julius Rosenberg, and his wife, Ethel. And, um, well, we'll talk about their fate in a second. But Greenglass was convicted in April 1951 and was given 15 years in prison. So Rosenberg, implicated by his brother-in-law, was arrested in July 1950. Ethel was arrested the following month. Both of them refused to cooperate and... There was a sensational trial, um, and both were found guilty under the 1917 Espionage Act. Um, this is quite a draconian measure put in during the First World War, but was um, pulled out for these particular guys. They were given special treatment, um, and both of them were sentenced to death. Um, 
after multiple appeals, they were both executed um, in uh, June 1953, uh, sent to the electric chair after Eisenhower, President Eisenhower, refused the last uh, appeal for clemency. Massively controversial move. I don't think anybody thought it would ever get that far, Um, but it gained its own momentum and basically Eisenhower had no option but to let the execution uh, go ahead um it's still debated today in um you know on, on campuses across the the u.s and basically anybody involved in international law the the rosenberg case is still actively debated today i've got an episode on the rosenbergs and their trial so i will add that to the episode notes as well there's going to be a chunky number of episodes in the episode notes I think that just shows really how it's everything's interconnected, and that's that's what makes it so interesting. Absolutely, absolutely. Are others revealed through Venona as well? Well, all these code names cropped up, and of course, there were three thousand messages, and they were only decoding really slowly. They'd also only partially decode certain messages, so there would be these tantalising code names appearing next to a load of gobbledygook. So, yeah, it was very much a a, a, time, a ticking time bomb, if you like, for the spies. Most of them, um, however, decided to do something about it and uh, jumped before they were caught. So the first was George Caval. So do you remember he was our professional GRU agent? Um, he was demobbed after the war, returned to New York. And then in October 1948, okay, this is prior to uh, Fuchs being found out, he jumps on a ship to go to Europe on holiday, or no, to, I think to go work in Europe or something, uh, disappears off the face of the earth, is never heard of again. So he he undoubtedly defected back to the U, to the uh, USSR and began a new life there under, under a different identity. Uh, Lona Cohen, who we talked about, our friend Lona, she and her husband, Morris, uh, they got out um, just after Fuchs was arrested. Um, so before that, the, the connections were able to be made, uh, they surfaced a few, a few years later in London under a assumed identity, and that's the. You got an episode on the Portland Spies. Uh, I've got two episodes on the Portland Spies, actually. Um, so yeah, that that's a, another intriguing espionage story that will be in the episode notes. So Lona and Morris um, uh, basically resurface in London as uh, Helen and Peter Kroger, but that's again another story. Um, Oscar Sabora, he was one of the SED guys. Basically, he defected in late 1951. So really, you know, 1950, 51, 52, 53, that's where it all starts to fall apart. Ted Hall, our physics prodigy, well, he basically returned to academia. Now, the FBI had suspicions about him and also his his chum, uh, Saville Sachs, but they could never prove it. And so basically, although Hall was actually a really damaging spy, perhaps not quite as bad as, as Fuchs, but he was you know up there because he was giving theoretical uh, information on the plutonium bomb. Um, they couldn't bring him to justice, so he actually escaped. Our friend McNutt, Russell McNutt, he died in 2008 uh, without having been identified. Um, he was actually only outed the year after his death uh, when it, he, he was um, included in a, in, a, in a book about the, uh, uh, the atomic bomb. So he, he basically um, uh, managed to escape justice. 
Um, Ursula Kaczynski, who appears throughout this story, uh, Agent Sonia, a legendary uh, uh, part of uh, Soviet intelligence, she uh, defected or escaped in February 1950. Again, that's prior to uh, Klaus Fuchs's arrest. And she settled in East Germany and uh, and basically lived her life out. She, she was actually a, a children's author uh, for a while anyway. Bruno Pontecorvo, um, we talked about him. He was suspected, but couldn't, again, there wasn't enough, there wasn't enough proof to, to, to bring him justice. Um, what they did was they, they put him in a sort of relatively obscure academic position away from any secrets. Um, he realized that he was, he was under suspicion. So in September 1950, uh, while he was on holiday with his family, he defected and disappeared. Uh, we have Donald McLean, who basically used his position in the U.S. Embassy in uh, Washington to pass atomic secrets to his handler. Uh, one of the, the, you know, he was one of the, fa- the, the famous Cambridge spies. He defected with his fellow spy, Guy Burgess, in May 1951. And that was, a, again, a really dramatic defection that was all over the news. John Cairncross, the interested, interesting uh, spy who was the first to alert Moscow of the bomb project, um, he was never brought to trial. So again, like some of the other um, cases, the evidence was thin, um, and without a confession, he couldn't be convicted. That's an interesting thing about Venona, actually. Because the um, code-breaking was so secret, the courts couldn't use it as evidence. So whilst they might have had um, evidence, unless it could be disguised as coming from an, another source, they couldn't use the Venona evidence. So they knew the guy was a spy, but they couldn't admit it in court. So the guy stayed stayed um, um, free. So they knew he was, you know, suspect. So they made him resign from the civil service and actually made him leave the country. So he took up an academic position in the US. But after Philby uh, defected, Philby defected in 63 and Anthony Blunt um, gave his first partial confession in, I think, 1964, Cairncross admitted to MI5 that he had worked for the Soviets. He didn't give the full story. He didn't actually explain that he, he was the one who basically broke the news of the bomb. But he did say, um, yeah, I did, I did do some work for the Soviets. He, this was viewed as a sort of a, a partial cooperation, and he got away without being prosecuted. So, again, he slipped from obscurity to obscurity, which suited, I think, as we said earlier, suited everyone quite nicely. Kim Philby, we talked about, um, he was one of the, the guy who tipped off some of the spies. Well, he famously defected in 1963, and there's um, Ben McIntyre's book and TV series that talk about um, talk about that. And I have an interview with his uh, granddaughter. There you go. Um, as a, as an episode, which is really interesting, because she went to visit him in Moscow, and uh, and and uh, he was the family. Call, well, she used to call him Uncle Kimsky. There you go. Well, he um, he 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 lived his life um, bit, again, a bit of a sad life in Moscow. But yeah, it's a really good episode. Actually, I enjoyed that one. Um, and then Melita Norwood, the last of our spies, well, as I said, she was exposed in 1999. Um, the Home Secretary at the, the time decided not to prosecute her. Um, 
prosecute this 87-year-old uh, little old lady. She'd, of course, outlived the entire Soviet Union, so all that she uh, had spied for all those decades had actually ceased to be. So, I mean, if you look back at the Atom Spies, it was a stunning success. You can't really s- say anything other other than that. Yep. And probably the most i'm trying to think i mean to to be able to gain the secrets of nuclear weapons is probably not a bigger secret no i think it was world changing is probably the best way of 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 putting it um yeah you're right you can't deny that stalin's i suppose his foresight of building these networks for nefarious reasons, you know, he's basically out to steal what he could. He needed those, these secrets to help kickstart his his tattered economy. But you know, he 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 had he had the foresight to put these guys in place, and then slowly but surely, sometimes despite of themselves, to be honest, we you know we've we've seen Beria sitting on intelligence because he thought it was disinformation we we've we've talked about the cambridge spies that their prolific output not being believed because it was almost too good to be true but it was true so yeah despite of themselves they were able to um to get to this end, end result so it gave the soviet union the bomb several years ahead it shifted the balance of power um globally it created the arms race because you know, obviously, we we haven't mentioned, but um, you know, so the Soviets detonated their atomic bomb in 1949. Well, how did Americans then respond? They decide to build the hydrogen bomb, so that 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 then creates another layer of um, you know, sort of deadly uh, risk for the world. The Soviets respond by building their hydrogen bomb. The Americans respond by building a bigger bomb, and so on, and so on, and so on, and that creates the arms race. It also the success that the Soviets had um, emboldened them on a sort of geo- geopolitical level as well. So you could argue that without the atomic spies giving them bomb, they would have never have, have um, invaded Korea, for example. Um, so it, those early years of the Cold War, it was the atomic spies, the the whole atomic strategy, completely um, drove the. Um, the, the early Cold War. It gave the Western intelligence organizations a major wake-up call. I mean, there were loads of wake-up calls they received, the, these these defections that were going through. But obviously, the betrayal of the biggest secret of the Second World War was a real wake-up call. And obviously, they then had to create a whole different intelligence network and, and so on and so on and so on. But also, I suppose, you know, it gave historians a lot to look at, filmmakers, podcasters, gave us loads of material to talk about. So that's why it's such a, a fascinating area. And I hope uh, you know the, the listeners enjoy hearing just this, this little snapshot. I'm sure they will. And this is just one of the stories in Andrew's book, Secrets of the Cold War, Espionage and Intelligence Operations from Both Sides of the Iron Curtain. It's highly recommended. There'll be links in the episode notes as to uh, where to purchase this. I mean, the book features quite an extensive section on Bricksmiths and the Allied military liaison missions, which I know is a popular subject amongst listeners. So do uh, seek out Andrew's book. It's published by Pen and Sword, Secrets of the Cold War. 
Don't miss the episode extras such as videos, photos and other content. Just look for the link in the podcast information. The podcast wouldn't exist without the generous support of our financial supporters and I'd like to thank one and all of them for keeping the podcast on the road. The Cold War Conversation continues in our Facebook discussion group. Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Thanks very much for listening and see you next week. not enjoying the ads well you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate by becoming a monthly or annual supporter you'll enjoy ad-free listening become a part of our community receive the sought after cold war conversations drinks coaster and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve cold war history just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information